Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. On this week's episode, we're discussing language and its use. Can we find the right words for everything, or are the most important things in life beyond language? To help us explore the limits of language, we're joined by literary critic Stanley Fish, Wittgenstein expert Genia Schoenbaumsfeld, and post-realist philosopher Hilary Lawson. So, no more mystification of poets, please. You either express it or you flunk it. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to our host for this week's debate, Joanna Cavenna. Can we find the right words for everything, even if we don't yet know what they are? Hilary, thank you. Thank you, Joan. So we have the impression, don't we, that we can describe almost everything. We look around the room, we see people, we see objects, uh, and so forth. Uh, Even to the extent that sometimes the world can seem a rather dull place where we have everything taped. But I'm going to argue that this is an illusion and that almost everything is left unsaid. Now, I don't say this because I'm somehow attached to a mystical notion of the world that uh, I'd like there to be more. I say it in a rather nitty-gritty, rationalist way that if we set out to try and describe what the things are that we see and have contact with, we find ourselves unable to do so. I guess the idea that language describes reality and describes things out there in the world is a very sort of common sense view. And uh, in the um, context of uh, philosophy, it's usually described as philosophical realism, this view. Now, one first indication of the problem with philosophical realism is that all of those different things we see out there, we can take any one of them and we can describe them in some other way. So, you know, this cup here, for example, what else might it be? Well, it could be a container. Um, I might say, oh, well, um, pass the water. I notice it actually says, I'm not a plastic cup, so presumably it's something else entirely. Um, It could be... It's by Magritte. It's a bomb. Uh, Yes, indeed. Well, it is. It's certainly an intellectual bomb, hopefully. Uh, And and, um, it could be the uh, lattice of um, uh, molecules. It could be the residue from the Big Bang. It could be an environmental strategy. There's no limit to the number of ways we can hold this bit of the world. Usually, realists try and get around this by saying, well, what's going on here is all of these different descriptions are of some underlying thing. 
But if you go and look for the underlying thing, if it's a physical thing, we, we can't find it. In the terms of the current scientific story, we'd end up with quarks and leptons and fluxes of energy, not, not, not really very credible as underlying things. And so, again, some uh, realists have tried to uh, propose that there's a transcendental thing that somehow beyond all of these uh, specific uh, things, which accounts for all of these different uh, ways that we can describe the world. Now, I, I want to propose that n none of that is viable and that um, instead we should think of the world as being open. And instead of thinking of it being made up somehow ultimately of bits out there, we think of it as being open. And we close that openness of the world with linguistic metaphors. I think we also do it with sensory metaphors as it happens. But anyway, uh, we close the openness of the world. And um, those uh, uh, metaphors, or more specifically, more technically, I describe as closures, uh, enable us to intervene. And if we hold this as a cup, I can then elaborate that metaphor. I can say, well, what sort of cup is it? Where was it made? What was it, its design? All of those sorts of things. If instead I hold it as a lattice of um, uh, biological molecules, I say, well, what, what is the shape of this lattice? What, what's the relationship between them? So each of our closures builds out as a sort of nest of more detailed versions. And those different metaphors enable us to intervene. If we hold this as a cup, we will then be able to intervene in it in a certain way. We'll be able to ask to, to pass it and so forth. If instead we, we hold it as something else, then we will change the way we intervene. So how, when we move from one closure to another, we change how we intervene in the world. My last thought to leave you with is that some of you may think, well, I'm rather attached to this idea that there's some underlying real behind all of these metaphors. And I, I don't really want to give it up. And to that I would say, well, for the past couple of millennia, we've not been able to und uh, identify the underlying things. There's no viable theory of how we could do so. There's no realist theory of language which would enable us to identify these things. And there's no realistic prospect that at some point we're going to be able to identify them in the future. So instead, if we hold the world as being open, there's an indefinite amount of potential, potential to be able to hold the world differently, to generate new closures, new ways of holding the world that enable us to intervene and hopefully make the world a better place. Thank you, Hilary. So I'll turn now to Genia Schoenbamsfeld with the same question. Can we find the right words for everything, even if we don't yet know what they are, Genia? Okay, thank you. Um, I think we need, first of all, to distinguish a number of different questions. So just already responding a tiny bit to um, what Hillary just said, I think we need to distinguish between the question, can there be one true description of the world, and the question, can everything be described? So those are two different questions. You might answer no to the first question. You might think there is no one true description of the world um, that has priority over other possible true descriptions. So that's one response you might make. Um, but that's a very different answer to a different question when you're perhaps wondering, 
is there such a thing as the in-principle inexpressible? So one way of understanding the question um, that Joanna has just asked is as the question, well, is there anything that transcends language? Are there certain things that we just cannot put into words? So I'm going to respond to that question. Is there anything inexpressible? Is it possible that we could find something that would resist any form of conceptualization, any rendering into a system of linguistic signs? And my answer to that question is going to be no. So I'm with the later Wittgenstein on language who thinks there is nothing beyond the bounds of sense except nonsense. So there's no such thing as the in-principle inexpressible. And it's interesting that um, that would be the response of the later Wittgenstein because the early Wittgenstein had quite a different view. I mean, some of you might be familiar um, with Wittgenstein's early work, The Tractatus. So in that work, he actually famously argued that all the things that really matter in human life, art, ethics, religion, all the, the, the big serious things, they are all ineffable. They're all in principle inexpressible. So he completely changed his mind in the later philosophy about that. And it, it's interesting to kind of just spend a moment thinking about why Wittgenstein had this view in the first place in the early work. I mean, you might think, you know, it's a crazy view. Is you know, can it be right that really we can't say anything about art, ethics and religion? I mean, you know, what have all the great artists, composers, etc. done? If you can't talk about these things, then, you know, what, what are we doing here? So, you know, you've all come to the wrong place. We actually can't talk about these things. That would be that would be really depressing if, if that were true. Now, the reason why Wittgenstein thought this in his early work is because he thought that language has an essence. So that there is one central thing that language tries to do. And in the early work, sort of to put it in a nutshell, he thought the essence of language is to describe the world. And crucially, to give you a description, a factual description of the way things are. And because he thought that, because he thought that the essence of language is basically to describe the facts, to provide linguistic models of the facts, for that reason he thought ethics, art and religion can't be put into words because, of course, these domains are not necessarily primarily fact-stating. I mean, ethics tells you about what you ought to do, not about what is the case. And the early Wittgenstein's conception of language just didn't have room for that. So because he had this very restrictive theory about what language is, it wasn't possible to accommodate all the things that Wittgenstein himself deeply cared about. So it was paradoxical um, that he had to do this to, to kind of, if you like, safeguard these subjects, which he thought were the most important things there are, but nevertheless, they couldn't be put into words on, on his own earlier system. So fortunately, he, he changed his mind about that in, in the later work. In the later work, he comes to recognize that language no longer has an essence. And crucially, he thinks now that meaning is primarily use. So in order to try and determine what particular words mean, we have to look at the way these words are used within the entire system of signs of which they are a part. And so once he'd kind of made that transition and he no longer thinks that the essence of language consists in describing the world, he also um, 
now opens up um, space for being able to talk about ethics and religion in a perfectly straightforward way. He no longer thinks these things have to be relegated to the realm of the ineffable. Great. So I'm, I'm sorry, we have limits yeah, of time okay. as well as language. Okay, alas, fine. But do you I'll, want I'll to stop. I'll offer you, you can I'll offer your final sentence. Okay, or my final sentence would just be to repeat a quip of Ramsey's about the tractatus. I mean, if we really thought um, that there is ineffable stuff, then really we should not be talking about it at all. So to paraphrase Ramsey, what can't be said can't be said, and you can't whistle it either. <laughs> Great. Thank you very much, Kenya. And so, Stanley, in the tradition of your How the Light get, Gets in Debates, are you going to answer this question? Kind Which of. Which is, can we find the right words for everything, even if we don't yet know yeah. what they are? Or do you have another question of your no, own? No, no, I'm going, going to, to kind of answer that question. <laughs> yeah. uh, when I began my teaching career in 1962, 56 years ago, I taught my first course to freshmen out of this newly published book called The Limits of Language. Uh, and here I am, 56 years later, still at the old stand and singing the same tune. Now, there are at least two ways in which you can think about the, our, our question, the limits of language. The first is that words can't say enough because the world that they would describe while there escapes the limits of words. And the second sense in which we might talk about the limits of language involves the limits imposed on us by language, not what words can't say, but the limits words or vocabularies place on what we can even see. Now, the first understanding of the phrase the limits of language, uh, that there are things that language will not capture, could itself be captured or was captured uh, by a song written by the American composer Johnny Mercer. Uh, I'm tempted to sing, but I'll just read. You're much too much and much too very, very to ever be in Webster's Dictionary. <laughs> and so I'm borrowing a love song from the birds to tell you that you're marvelous, too marvelous for words. Now, you got to think, that's pretty damn good, first of all. <laughs> now, Mercer borrows a love song from the birds because, at least according to him, the birds have no recourse to language, don't need it when expressing their love. They just breathe it non-reflectively. Uh, what mere words express in a way that is always distant from the thing expressed, the love song of the birds doesn't express, but is the thing itself. What we're all after and never uh, achieved. Wallace Stevens, a great American poet, made the same point in his poem, Add This to Rhetoric, uh, when he wrote, Tomorrow, when the sun, for all your images, still comes up as the sun. That is, men and women have split, spilt endless amounts of ink attempting to capture the sun in words, but when that is all done and done and done again, the sun comes up as itself, unavailable to the capturing ambitions of words and always exceeding them. Uh, now for the second sense in which we might think about the limits of language. Uh, words limit not only what we can say, but what we can see, because our vocabulary delivers us to a world, uh, delivers to us the world that is, uh, ma that is made available by that vocabulary. Uh, and uh, there we are, 
confined to the vocabularies that have come to us through the accidents of fortune and time. Uh, so that when we write sentences, the objects we place in the syntax of those sentences acquire the shape and limitations of those sentences. And if we add other sentences, we'll have other limitations and other shapes, uh, but never approach uh, the thing itself. Now, forever, Artists have been trying to break the linear constraints of language by using puns, uh, reversals of syntax, uh, tetherless fragments, etc., etc. And they're always attempting to, in a sense, to, in a sense uh, uh, present themselves as a platform for us to go uh, beyond language uh, to uh, something that language can't name. I'll leave you uh, with a statement made by the uh, American philosopher Richard Rorty, who said in one of his books, the world is out there, but descriptions of the world are not. Uh, by which he means that descriptions of the world proceed not from it and its fullness, but from the finite constructed languages made by men and women. Closure, in other words. Languages which, because they are constructed, can pose and can arrange, but always fall short of what in nature merely grows. Thank you. That's great. And thank you for bringing in poetry as well. That, well, you know, um, I'm used to make my living that way. Well, that's, yes, that's true too. Yeah. So we have some agreement, um, dangerously enough, on the panel and also some disagreement. I want to turn first to Hilary. So, I mean, your argument is that there's been this long attempt to create a realist version of language. Um, but if we accept that everything is ineffable, we can't really intervene. Is that the, so we need a further theory, some way, as you say, that closure is a way, otherwise we're just lost and we can't really do or say anything. Is that, is that am I praising um, insufficiently, I'm it, sure, but do you want to it, say well, more it, in, about this? In part, I mean, uh, I mean the, 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 the realist trope in a philosophical sense has been, you know, dominant for the last, at least in North America and, and the UK, you know, since, since Russell and Wittgenstein overturned Hegelianism back in, uh, back in the turn of the 19th century. Um, it's not so much that uh, I think um, w we, need a, we need to bolster that theory, it's just that I think it, it, it's failed. I mean, right. it, there isn't a decent realist theory. Wittgenstein in the Tractatus came to the conclusion that it's logically impossible. Um, in terms of the, what I was putting forward, though, and in the context of what Jeannie was saying uh, later Wittgenstein, um, I see the proposal that I'm proposing in terms of openness and closure as, in a way, a response to what I see as being the difficulties of the later Wittgensteinian position. So it seemed to me Wittgenstein abandoned the idea to describe the relationship between language and the world because he'd come to the conclusion the Tractatus that it wasn't logically possible. And in his later work, far from being able to say everything, he doesn't think that you can say anything at all about the essential nature of our predicament, I, what the nature is between, the nature of uh, the relationship between language and the world is at all. So he avoids it. So he's constantly avoiding saying anything in terms of an overall philosophical view. And, and that seems to me to be a certain sort of bad faith, that the way that we understand the later Wittgenstein is to, 
is to impute this view to him that we are just all in a language game, but he can't quite say that because if we imagine it as there we are humans and we're operating in this language game, we're somehow trying to step outside of language and say how it ultimately is. So we have to try and catch on to the fact that he's trying to tell us something about what's going on, but he can't quite tell us. And, and I, I can't buy this. I think we do need an overall framework which in a sense is in the Wittgensteinian position of not being able to have a realist account of language, but which enables us to be able to operate and function. And the account that uh, I've indicated you have in terms of thinking of the world as being open and we provide closures which enable us to intervene uh, is an attempt to build that sort of framework, which is not a realist framework. It's not saying this is how it ultimately is. It itself is a metaphor. It itself is a closure. But uh, I would obviously advocate that it's got some value and it helps us uh, make sense of where we are. And, it, and you might find it uh, useful in the way that you operate in the world. I'm going to bring Genia in in a moment on Wittgenstein. I just want to press you one more uh, on one more question. So is the premise then that, in a way, it's a language game to... Um, divide things into ineffable and effable, as it were, so inexpressible in language and expressible, that, that, would, that that's almost a rearrangement of things in relation to the possibility there is something beyond, that that's not adequate. So that, that almost everything's inexpressible at one level, but then we can't do that. Yes, I'm not sure I fully understand your point. I mean, so would you, I, I, I would you accept say that. philosophically, this is effable, this is ineffable, or within a closure yes. system, could you do that? Yes. Well, the, f the vocabulary of openness and closure is trying to find some way to get outside of the puzzle that, of course, as soon as you refer to the ineffable, in some sense, you can't because you've actually just referred to it as some yeah. something and therefore yeah. you've made it. I mean, the first uh, philosophical work I wrote was called Reflexivity, and it's exactly about that problem of self-reference. Yeah. So in a way, it's trying to find a solution to that and to say, give up on the idea that the world is something in particular anything in particular, think of the world as being open, and we find ways to close it. And of course that applies to what I am saying now and to the theory that I'm fortifying. It's a way of closing the world, and it helps us intervene. Of course I'm not saying that this is a new truth. That would be absurd. But I do think we have to engage in trying to create theories. We have to try and provide metaphors, try and make sense of where we are, while recognizing that um, they're never going to arrive. Thank you. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Gedeo, would you come in on this question? You said nothing is inexpressible in principle, the Wittgensteinian remark. Well, actually, I'd, like, I'd, 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 like, yeah. I'd like to say something in response to yes. um, what Please Hillary do. has yeah. said about Wittgenstein, because I'm afraid I completely disagree with virtually everything you've said about Wittgenstein. Great. Well, sit back and watch, audience. So, <laughs> 
so on, 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 on the early Wittgenstein, I mean, he didn't think offering a theory that connects language and world is, is logically impossible. I mean, he thought you can't express it in propositions, but, but language shows it. And he still thought he could talk quite a lot about what can't be said. And this is why he's got the metaphor about throwing away the ladder at the end. I mean, it obviously ends in logical paradox. He's presenting a theory and then at the end saying, well, actually, this theory can't be expressed. So throw away the ladder after you've climbed it. And obviously, that's hugely unsatisfactory. But, but he, did, he did think that he presented um, a true, if paradoxical, and not actually, in the end, stateable theory. But he, he did think he'd captured something about what the relation between language and the world is. Now, so, shall I just re respond? So, so I, I just hold it slightly differently. Of course, we'd be talking about the same key bits here. And whether uh, Wittgenstein sort of held what he was saying in the tractators as being true, which is you're saying he, he presented this as a true uh, what he says in I the, think, in, the in the in preface, the, tr the truth of mm. these thoughts seems to me unassailable sure. and definitive. Sure. <laughs> seems very... But, but he also says at the end we have to throw it away. So those two are, are not compatible. He can't on the one hand be asserting it as saying it is true, and at the other hand saying that he's throwing it away. So the way I read it... It's ineffably is, true. Is, is, ...is that <laughs> he, has, he, he does as well as he can to say how it is. He thinks he's got the best realist theory out there, but he concludes at the end, but I can't do this. And as a result of that, he abandons this philosophical position in his later... Uh, work, uh, because he's come to the conclusion that you can't do it. So, so that would be my way of understanding that, r rather than saying, oh, actually, Wittgenstein was in the position of believing that something was true that he said is impossible. Well, do you want he to yeah, just respond quickly? Well, on that? I, I mean, he, 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 he thought, and, you know, I'm not saying that this is a view that anyone should take, but at the time, I think he was committed to, to the thought um, that this was an ineffably true theory, can't be expressed in propositions because propositions can only state facts. But nevertheless, the way he characterized the relation between language and the world, he thought that was correct. If it could be capturable, counterfactuals, then that's how it would be. But, but obviously, that's, that's a huge problem. And he did change his mind. But actually, I think, weirdly enough, he didn't change his mind because of that problem. He changed his mind because of the colour exclusion problem. He changed his mind because he thought it's no longer correct that elementary propositions are independent of each other. Um, but that might lead us too, too far afield. Thank you. I mean, we're going to have to rattle through our All themes because right, well, time I, is... But I want to focus... As, I mean, Stanley, of course, say whatever you like. Yes, I'm going to respond directly to Hillary. Oh, OK, do that, yes, and then I'll ask uh, you another question. Uh, OK. A while ago, I invented something that I called anti-foundationalist theory hope. Uh, this is the idea that if uh, we realize that the search for foundations is never going to, to use a pragmatist term, cash out, uh, comma, therefore. And I, what I've always said is nothing can coherently follow that therefore. So that my quarrel, if it is a quarrel with Hillary, uh, has to do with why he thinks he has to say any of the things that he's just said. <laughs> for instance, if he says... Uh, we give up on the idea of that the world is anything in particular, 
Okay, and then the next sentence he utters is, think of it as open. Well, if it's nothing in particular and it's open, why do we have to think of it as open? Its openness will take care of itself. Or to put it another way, giving up, I'm asking him to give up on the idea that giving up on the idea that the world is anything in particular gets us anywhere. And that's in general uh, a subset of my argument I've been making for years is that philosophy doesn't matter. It's a nice game that you play in the seminar. Cover and your ears, rare, audience. Cover your ears. Rarefied <laughs> occasions like this one. But once you leave the philosophy seminar and go out into the world and are confronted with tasks and issues, nothing that you have learned or unlearned in that seminar will matter in the slightest. Hillary, I mean, so, uh, sorry, uh, I I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, Hillary, you have to... I mean, I don't know how you're going to do this because, you know, we, time is short, but you've yeah. got to respond to why you say what you say and yeah. also that philosophy doesn't matter. I mean, there's... there's sure. yes, but I think For maybe sure. let's sure. park the philosophy doesn't matter sure. debate. And, well, but uh, and, um, and let's do why, why you so, say what you say. So uh, it, it seemed to me, you know, why, why have a go at trying to provide an underlying account rather than just sort of getting on with things? Yes. Well, well my, my uh, version of that would be that um, we build um, all sorts of uh, ways of understanding the world and uh, all sorts of closures, as I would describe them, in order to be able to intervene. And, and part of that exercise is to try also and provide a general account of what's going on for us in a way I think we can't avoid having a general account. This would be my criticism of Wittgenstein and of Derrida, later Wittgenstein and Derrida, is that I think we need that overall account uh, to try and make sense of what's going on. And we build one whether we like it or not. We choose some way of understanding what's happening to us. So the idea that we can deal with a sort of non-foundationalism just by avoiding the topic, which is sort of Wittgenstein, later Wittgensteinian position, or a Derridian position that we deconstruct everything we've last said, just seems to me to leave us all in a situation where we're profoundly lost. Instead, I think that we have to grapple with the idea of trying to provide an overall account which nevertheless is not foundational. And we, want, we need that overall account just to make sense of our lives. I mean, while you say, well, you know, you can leave all of this philosophy stuff in, uh, in the library sort of thing and just get on with your life, I think we're all, we're all in a situation of trying to make sense of what we're up to, what are we doing, what's our, what's our, what's our raison d'etre. We need that framework, and I think we should be trying to make that framework while at the same time recognizing that it's, it's not the ultimate one, it's a way of holding the world. For Can all of the, that I admire about you, Hillary, I'm so disappointed to find that after all, you're still a theorist. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, hang on, I want to... We're talking a lot about language. There's a, obviously, this is a debate about the limits of language, but, I mean, intrinsic to that is a notion that there's something that cannot be expressed in language, or there are aspects of experience that are not susceptible to linguistic expression. I mean, are we going to concur that there are 
elements of experience that are non-linguistic. Joanna, before we get oh, before, on to okay, that, can, can, have, I, can, I, can I just say something yeah. about the later Wittgenstein? Because I'm afraid I just cannot let okay. the picture <laughs> that Hillary <laughs> has just painted can I, stand. Can I, can and I don't want I, the audience to go away thinking yeah, the yeah. later Wittgenstein yeah. doesn't okay. give you any kind right. of account of language that he yes. is just basically saying we can opt out of philosophy. Ultimately, it, it doesn't matter. I think that's just not the case at all. He's, he's, he's really doing the opposite of that. He thinks philosophy matters intensely because we're all naturally philosophically confused. And one way in which we get confused is by being ensnared within the nets of language. So our language suggests certain forms of words to us, which makes us think, for example, that what we need is perhaps one true description of the world. We're all naturally essentialists. We all think, well, there has to be one correct theory about how language latches onto the world. And what the later Wittgenstein realizes is that there isn't just one way in which language latches onto the world. And we don't need to take a kind of God's eye view on what the relation is between language and the world to say perfectly meaningful things about language. So, I mean, the thought that meaning is use, for example, um, is a perfectly good answer to the question, how do words acquire meaning? So it's not, you know, he doesn't suggest it as a, as a theory to rival um, philosophical theories, but it's one way of getting us away from being mesmerized by certain misleading pictures about language. And so, I mean, he has a lot of constructive things to say. And I think one also needs to be wary about putting Wittgenstein in the vicinity of Derrida because Wittgenstein isn't a postmodernist. He doesn't think that there is no such thing as truth and it's all just... Derrida doesn't and, think and that it's either. it's all just a construction. Well, good, I'm, I'm glad. But if anyone thought that that's what Derrida thinks, then that's not what Wittgenstein no, thinks. Okay. That's the comic book version. Oh, yes, I'm going to give Hillary one chance to respond on that and then, I don't know about you, but I think we can move on from Wittgenstein. I mean, if we yes. ever can move on from Wittgenstein... <laughs> I, I, I'm sure. I mean, uh, uh, you know, one could engage in Wittgenstein uh, in a scholarship yes. indefinitely. Yeah. Um, I think the, the issue here is, of course, Wittgenstein thinks that he has useful and valuable things to say about um, confusions in the way that we use uh, words. We can try and summarize his position by turning it into a meaning as use sort of theory, inverted commas. But he's going to avoid, isn't he? Uh, giving an overall account of what he's up to in his uh, philosophy. And that position of being unable to describe the foundation in the way that Stanley was saying seems to me to be a very contemporary predicament. And of course, um, Wittgenstein is a very different place than Derrida, but they share this avoidance of a foundation and that gets them into a self-referential problem that they can't express their view in, uh, in terms of their overall philosophical position and they have to either you know, reject what they've just said or avoid it or whatever. And uh, my uh, argument would be, no, we have to engage in trying to build a theory um, which is non-foundationalist, is non-foundationalist, but which nevertheless enables us to intervene effectively in the world. Great. Drop the okay. word build from your vocabulary. Well, 
hang on, this is um, freedom of speech. I mean, we, you know, he can freedom deploy any term he likes. I've written surely. many books against that. Well, okay. which are available and, and in our bookshop. And that's the clincher, yes. of course. So, so, Stanley, before you embarked on your remarks, I thought you were going to be the conciliatory middle ground of this debate. That was... And, um, so I, and indeed, your remarks about poetry possibly suggested that you might take this line, because is not poetry a kind of... So we have, you know, there's inexpressible, possibly, I realise this is a contentious question itself, but there are aspects that we don't necessarily surrender immediately into beautiful phrases, aspects of experience, and then there are linguistic experiences. You, you said we sort of create the world through language and our experiences, what we can see is defined through language. But then isn't poetry doing something a little different? It's trying to gesture towards something much more imagistic and vague, and almost going towards, you know, this thing you also mentioned, the absolutely important experience, which is the mystical idea that the most important thing would be the silent experience, the thing too marvellous for words. Well, so is poetry, isn't poetry a kind of funny sort of interim or transcendental thing beyond these two rival that, poles? That's an idea of poetry that uh, has grown up in the last 300 years. Uh, and before that, the tradition more or less... Uh, followed Horace, uh, who talked about poetry as being uh, teaching that is useful, but because it is delightfully presented. Uh, or as Pope said, uh, and Alexander Pope said in a famous couplet, true wit is nature to advantage dressed, what oft was thought, but ne'er so well expressed. Again, pretty good. Uh, now, so... Uh, then we've uh, had this theory of poetry which uh, allies it to the tradition of the vates, V-A-T-E-S, uh, the inspired person, uh, the Dionysian uh, holy zeal of poetry. Uh, I take that as uh, myself uh, as a form of public relations uh, that poets uh, sometimes uh, engage in. Uh, but I'm, I'm afraid that I'm going to disappoint you once again. Uh, <laughs> no, you by, could never disappoint by, me. By not delivering a, uh, a, a, an account of poetry uh, that, it, that allies it with mysticism. Uh, in fact, of all of the statements made about poets and poetry uh, in the last 100 years, the one I like least is Archibald MacLeish's uh, A Poem Must Not Mean But Be. As far as I'm concerned, all poems mean, and you can figure out what they mean, and you can say it. Okay. And the, I mean, the idea of a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, and that sort of, I mean, this question as well of when we, if we're going to name something, Genia, if we name, say, Brian Cox said, when we name dark matter, we know the name. Mm -hmm. I mean, are we by naming something actually knowing it, or are we just attaching a name to it? No, I mean, naming is as later Wittgenstein would say, just a preliminary move in the language game. So if you, right. if you name something, you kind of set it up for a particular purpose. Um, but that's not to say that you've yet said anything interesting about this thing in question. Right. But ending on a conciliatory note, I, I totally agree with what Stanley has just said about poetry. I think it's always possible to paraphrase what poetry um, is doing, but obviously you're doing it in a more inept way. I mean, what right. makes poetry special is that it can put in a better, more interesting, fuller way um, what could be put in prosaic form as well. But the interesting thing is, you know, the, the many possibilities that 
yes. are made available by by poetry. But right. in my view, that's not because yeah. Poet, it, yeah. it gets onto the ineffable. Right, it's right. it's just that it offers more nuanced, more interesting ways of 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 describing things. Yes, I, and is that sorry? You want I to agree ask? with that, and I would I would give the analogy to sports. If you watch an extraordinary athlete, uh, you realize that in some sense that athlete. Uh, is like you, has some of the same physical capacities, uh, but instead can do things uh, that you, uh, earthbound as you are, at least I, earthbound as I am, uh, could never possibly do. And it's the same uh, with poets who do with language, uh, the same language that you use to make up the grocery list, uh, things that you yourself could uh, never man, uh, imagine uh, or manage. That doesn't make them ineffable. That just makes them more skilled than I am. Mm. Hillary, so, do you want to come in? Unfortunately, I, I'm not going to agree with either of you on this. Um, <laughs> oh, good. But I need to end on a note of concord. Uh, 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 so uh, it, it seems it's to two me, against it, one it seems now. to me the, the idea that you can translate out a piece of poetry, you know, oh, Rose, thou art sick into some literal language which would say the same thing is it's just not the case. You, you, uh, the, the, the value and power of the poetic phrase is that it retains an openness which is not specific and which you could elaborate indefinitely and in an indefinite number of ways. And uh, the other thing I'd like, just, Stanley, you quoted Rorty to start with. Now, Richard Rorty um, uh, I, 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 um, argued at the end of his life for a poeticization of culture, by which he meant he wished us to avoid assertoric language as if we could state everything precisely for very much very similar reasons to the reasons that I have been giving in terms of arguing for thinking of the world as being open and that we close it. And so he argued for a poeticization of language. Now, um, where do you stand on that? Oh, I stand uh, on that very Stanley. easily. And can you stand on it fairly briefly and then I'm yeah. going to turn to the audience, yes. Just that the unhappy product of his having been the roommate of Harold Bloom <laughs> at one time uh, in, in his life. The idea that openness is a characteristic of poetry um, is, I think, a mistake, except that openness is a characteristic uh, of language in general. If openness were the characteristic of poetry, then literary critics couldn't do their job. What literary critics do is say to other literary critics, you got that wrong. And if you, uh, in order to be able to say, you got that wrong, there has to be something that they could agree on occupied the position of the that and that it could be statable. So no more mystification of poets, please. You either express it or you flunk it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers. <laughs>